Hey everyone, welcome to the second episode of The Layperson's GTA with me, Alexander Wong. So today's episode is very near and dear to my heart. It is, is my master's research. Uh, I just finished, like literally just finished my uh, master's degree at Virginia Tech. Um, and I hope for anyone who's listening that you've listened to the first episode, at least first, uh, to sort of just get a gist of what I'm trying to do here. Um, and then I'm going to try to also make this as interesting as possible. Uh, I've given, you know, my talk uh, about my master's research to people who don't have, really have science backgrounds before, and I've seen a few people doze off before, so I know that this can be boring. Uh, I'm going to try to make it not boring, though. I'm going to try to, you know, give you only what you need to know, why you should care, and then pretty much move on from there. Uh, so, yeah. Topic today is biological control of crown gall of grapevine. So I'm going to break that one down again. So biological control is pretty much using organisms to control other organisms. Uh, crown gall uh, is a disease uh, that I'm about to get into and then of grapevines. So, you know, uh, specifically grapes that make wine. You know, everyone likes or a lot of people like wine, uh, myself included. Um, and, you know, this is a big problem in the wine industry, so we want to, uh, you know, make sure that we keep uh, the wine industry uh, nice and profitable. So, let's see. Uh, what is crown gall? Uh, crown gall is a cancer-like growth of cells in a plant. So the plant cells actually grow very similarly to cancer cells, uh, say, in humans. Um, but this cancer-like growth isn't just due to random errors uh, in the cells like it is in humans. It's actually caused by a pathogen. And this pathogen is a bacterium known as Rhizobium uh, vitis. There are other strains or other species, I should say, of this bacterium that can infect other plant hosts. Most plants can actually get this disease, but it's mostly a problem in these agricultural crops such as grapes or apples. Uh, so... This pathogen is able to cause these cancer-like growths in plants by actually changing the genetic information or DNA of the plant cell. So it actually, instead of just like going in and causing damage or, you know, leaching off of the plant uh, to cause disease, this one actually goes in and transforms or and changes the plant cell at a genetic basis you know so this is a very uh highly evolved uh method of infection uh very very complicated and which makes it a very very difficult uh disease to control because how do you just you know you can't just you know spray uh a chemical to kill it because you know the plant cell itself has been changed so how does it do this uh, the bacterium is actually able to take a small piece of DNA that it carries around with it and actually put it into the genetic information of the plant. So the plant now carries this DNA with it and will start to express it or, you know, uh, whatever it encodes for, it'll start to produce. And in this case, it produces a few different things. First off, uh, there are enzymes that uh, are produced as, you know, as a result of having this uh new DNA being expressed, and what they facilitate are the synthesis or creation of plant growth hormones. 
these plant growth hormones, you know, work very similarly to maybe how, you know, human or animal growth hormones is they stimulate growth. Uh, in this case, they stimulate both division and growth of the cell itself. So what you end up with is, you know, massive amounts of these growth hormones being produced. So these cells will grow and divide completely uncontrollably. Um, and there would just be tons of them. And they each, each one that divides will, you know, carry along that new DNA that's been brought in from the bacterium. So what we end up with are all these cells that continue to produce these plant hormones and then continue to cause, you know, uncontrolled cell growth, very similar to cancer. And um, this causes, you know, pretty damaging uh, results in the host because, you know, these cells that are, you know, continuing to divide are using up a lot of the plant's um, resources, both water and nutrients. So they become uh, sinks in a sense because all the nutrients and water are no longer being funneled to the rest of the plant. They're actually just being funneled into these uh, cells, which are called, you know, they're, they're gall cells. That's crown gall. So crown uh, is really where most of these uh, symptoms or growths occur, which is at the base of the vine, which is called the crown. Uh, and then galls are essentially just plant tumors. So that's where the name crown gall comes from. So what else is produced uh, from these gall cells is uh, small uh, little chemicals and molecules. And what they are, are just these two are just two little things, uh, an amino acid, and then a different type of carbon source. Uh, there's a bunch of different ones, uh, just for the sake of example, pyruvate, which is uh, a chemical that's typically broken down from glucose to be used as an energy source. Um, so when these two molecules are then bound together, you, in a sense, have made a new, you know, you have this new molecule called an opine. And these opines are not used by the plant, but they're encoded by the plant because it's caused by that new little piece of DNA that's been inserted. So once these opines have been synthesized, they're then exported out of the plant and then used by the bacterium. So you've taken two very important things from the plant, bound them together, shipped them out, and then the bacterium imports it, breaks them apart, and can use them. So in a sense, the bacterium takes these plant cells and turns them into dividing factories for themselves, which is an amazing process. You know, you, you know, instead of, you know, having to go out and get their own food, they just make the plant make their food for them, which is an incredible process, uh, if you ask me. So... As these galls continue to grow and then feed the bacterium, uh, like I said, it pulls away water and nutrients from the rest of the plant, so that reduces both your yields and the plant health. Uh, eventually, the plant health will decline to the point that it can actually just lead to the death of the vine. So this is a big problem in Virginia crown gall. Um, it's not as big of a problem in California, and I'll explain that in just a second. Uh, it's really just a problem out here in the East Coast. And the difference is, is that we have much colder winters in the, in the East. Um, our winters can get pretty chilly, and that actually cold damage 
can actually cause splitting of the vines. So extreme temperatures can actually cause damage to these vines, which allows the bacterium to enter. So the bacterium can't normally enter uh, unless there are actually wounds for them to get through. Um, this wounding event is pretty crucial uh, because one, that allows the bacterium to enter, and two, it actually triggers the process of infection. Um, when the bacterium actually senses chemicals that are given off by cells that have been wounded, uh, it actually cause, you know, causes the bacterium to begin you know, processing this little piece of DNA to put it into the plant. Because normally it keeps it at a pretty low uh, number. It's just you know, kind of sitting around waiting uh, because it costs too much energy to be constantly you know, maintaining it. Um, so it really just waits for the right time. Uh, but yeah, this this disease uh, has you know been a problem in Virginia because it's it's everywhere. Uh, the bacterium is everywhere. It lives in the soil. Uh, it's commonly contaminated in nurseries. So nurseries will commonly you know uh, have it in some of their vines, and then if they ship out you know nursery stocks to vineyards, then they're shipping out the the bacterium to them as well, and then you know uh, grafting, which is just you know putting a root stock or root of a, you know, type of a certain vine with, you know, the, the fruit bearing part and, you know, cutting them and merging them together. Um, that mechanical injury can actually, you know, be, you know, one, how the bacterium gets in and two, you know, be, you know, what triggers infection. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of problems. Uh, sanitation is a really big issue. Um, but also those cold weather injuries uh, that we get in the mid-Atlantic um, also, you know, lead to a lot of crown gall. So California has a lot more mild winters, so they just don't have those, you know, those cold weather events that cause damage. Uh, and this disease, you know, even if we, even if we look on the conservative end, it's still costing Virginia wine, uh, which is a billion dollar industry, millions of dollars every year, um, just in, you know, production, uh, and that's just Virginia. So if we consider New York, which also, you know, has very cold winters and uh, other northern, you know, mid-Atlantic states, you know, we could be seeing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in damage. And that's a conservative estimate. Uh, I've been in, you know, at vineyards where they've been like, we had to take out half of our vineyard uh, because it's just, there was just too much crown gall. Um, and, you know, that's, that's really one of the only ways that we have to control it now. Uh, most control methods, you know, are, are kind of just around that as, you know, just replace because, but that's not really a sustainable option, right? Uh, you can't really just, you know, tear it out and put a, a new vine back in because your soil is still infested. So it's going to get in eventually. And if you have a freezing injury uh, event to that vine, you could have gall next year. So it is a, it is an issue that we have to, you know, address uh, right now because, you know, another way that we... Uh, can control crown gall is by picking correct sites so we can try to mitigate the amount of uh, winter damage that we get to our vines by maybe having a nice site on a slope of a hill where cold air can just kind of like drain out so you don't have these you know frost pockets uh, but let's say when you first pick the vineyard you know you didn't pick the right spot you know you can't just be like up. Oh, crap, well, this is the wrong spot, just pick it up and move it somewhere else. That's really just not economically feasible. Uh, so that's not really an option. Uh, you could try to 
you know, select the, uh, I'm using air quotes right now, correct, uh, grape type or variety. Uh, so there are some varieties that are more cold hardy than others. Um, your common, you know, wine varieties that you see at your local, you know, wine and beer store uh, or liquor store are going to be, you know, your Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, the, those varieties, they're actually the most, you know, susceptible to being injured in cold weather, you know, so, but since they're, the market drives for these, you know, European variety wines, you know, growers continue to plant them. Um, there are, you know, American native grapes and uh, hybrid varieties of the European and the American uh, grape varieties. They're more cold hardy, but the market isn't pushing for wines made from these grapes. So growers aren't going to grow them uh, because it's just not, once again, it's not economically feasible, even though they get less crown gall. Uh, so we're at this, you know, th this tough spot. Uh, chemical options are not really viable either. Uh, you can fumigate. Uh, your soil, which basically means you're injecting this toxic chemical into your soil, which kills off, you know, life forms, um, which used to be an effective method. Uh, but one of the common, you know, fumigants uh, is actually not used anymore because it's so toxic and d dangerous to the environment. The Environmental Protection Agency was like, we can't use this anymore. Um but you also have to think in a, in a vineyard setting, it might not be, uh, you know, it might not be, you know, able to be used anyway because, you know, it's going to be hard to fumigate soil with all these like vineyard trellises and, and things like that. Um, so it'd be, it'd be difficult anyway. So it, that was never really going to be an option. Um, there is another chemical out there that's uh designed to kill gall cells so it leaves the healthy cells alone um but it kills the gall cells uh this works but the thing is is like very similar with cancer if you don't get all of it it'll just come back and this chemical doesn't do anything against the pathogen that causes the disease so if you don't kill the pathogen the pathogen will just reinfect new cells and uh start the process all over again so it's once again not a sustainable method to control crown gall. Um, so what do we turn to now? And the main focus of controlling crown gall is biological control. Um, this has been used in the past for crown gall, actually, but uh, in apples. So they found a bacterium uh, very closely related to the one that causes the disease. And what it actually does is it produces a small molecule that actually kills the uh, other you know, the disease-causing bacteria. Uh, so this has actually been used uh, in the apple industry to prevent crown gall. Uh, but when we look at crown gall for grapes, this product has is completely ineffective, doesn't work at all. Um, so we have to think of something new. Uh, there are a few different biological controls for grapevine crown gall, and I was just happy you know, lucky enough to get to work with one of them. Um, so mine is a new biological control agent. It was found in Japan, actually. And what they found in Japan was that this was very effective. Uh, they did co-inoculations. And by co-inoculation, what I mean 
is they essentially wounded a plant by either stabbing it or you know maybe making a drill hole and then injecting uh, the bacterium that both cause the, the disease and then also our biological control agent. Um, by injecting them, we've actually you know created a scenario you know of wounding and all and all of that. Um, so when they did these co-inoculations where they actually mixed the bacterium that causes disease and the bacterium that's used as their biocontrol, they saw pretty great reductions in ground gall as compared to, you know, just inoculating or injecting the bacterium that causes disease by itself. They were seeing 90%, you know, reductions. So that's great. You know, that's really awesome. But we have to prove that that works here in the in the States as well. You know, it's not enough to just be like, oh, this works in Japan. You know, it's going to be, uh, it's going to work everywhere. That's not how, it, that's not how science <laughs> does. You know, you have to do your, you know, your due diligence. Uh, so we got it here in the U.S. Um, and what we were doing is basically the same thing they were doing uh, in Japan just here. Uh, really simple, actually. Uh, so we did this in both tomatoes because uh, they're a great model system. They grow really fast. They form galls fast. So, you know, we can go from you know inoculation uh, to data really, really quickly. Um, so yeah, so we would just stab uh, tomato stems and then inject the bacterium right into those stab wounds, and then you know, a couple weeks later, you know, we're we're seeing galls. So like I said, we would mix our biological control agent with these disease-causing bacterium just to see uh, how that, you know, changed the, uh, one, how many galls formed. So uh, sometimes, you know, when we mixed it, no galls would form at all. So we'd have really good control. Uh, sometimes galls did form still, even when mixed, but the galls were smaller. So not only were we looking at uh, how many galls um, as a proportion of the amount of inoculations we had, but we were also looking at, um, for galls that did form, how big did they get? So more of like looking at severity. So we were both looking at, you know, how frequent are galls forming? And then also how severe are the galls that do form? Uh, so that was a good, like, you know, a good way to look at both, both sides. So just to, you know, that's how we did our experiments, you know. And what our results said is, yeah, we're seeing really, you know, comparable results or really similar results to what uh, studies in Japan showed. So, you know, we're seeing when when we take our biological control agent and mix it with our disease-causing bacterium, we're seeing, you know, reductions of, you know, in the high 80s, you know, around 90%, just like in Japan. Um, And, you know, we also tried this not just with taking just one bacterial strain, uh, we also did we did multiple different ones, and then we would do combinations of them. And we had four total strains that we tested this against. But we what we did was we would take you know maybe two or four all four of them and mix those together and then challenge our biological control agent. Uh, and then we also messed around a little bit with ratios. So what if we use double the amount? of our biological trajan or the other way around and use double the amount of our disease causing uh, bacterium as opposed to our biological control agent because that's going to be important uh, so that's what we sort of looked at and what we got from all of that was that yeah our biological control agent is working it's really 
it's working, it's stopping golf formation, it's reducing golf severity. So we're really excited about these results. And what we think, you know, we need to test some more things. So like one of the things that I think uh, is going to be tested in the future is that we're going to be looking at, uh, you know, how are we going to apply this biological control agent in the field? Are we going to have to, you know, soak the roots um, with this biological control agent before we put it out in the field? Uh, or can we like put it in the field and then just maybe like spray it onto the bark? Can we, do we have to like, you know, manually inject it? You know, how, how are we going to get our best results, you know, from what application method? And then we also want to look at timing. Um, so do we have to have this, you know, applied, you know, like six months before winter, three months, you know, just one day, like how, how does that, that all, you know, change things? So we're going to be definitely looking at that. I'm sure, uh, it's not going to be my project, but it'll be someone else's. Uh, and then, you know, once, if all of that comes back and, you know, it's feasible that we could use this in a commercial, you know, setting, uh, we'd have to do a little bit more before it could actually be used as a product. So, you know, when, when something new from a foreign area is introduced, we have to make sure that it's not going to disrupt what's already going on here. We can't just throw it out there and like hope for the best you know we've seen that too many times you know with release of invasive species and how they just really exploded in their population and caused issues uh so we have to be careful with that you know especially with you know our microbes so we need to make sure you know this is part of you know science ethics and you know making sure that you do what you need to do you know you know, just because you have something doesn't mean you should immediately use it. You need to go through the process. You know, it's slow and, you know, the public may lose interest because, it, but this is, a, you know, it's necessary. It's important that you do um, more good than actual harm. So what we would need to do is make sure that this new biological control agent, if introduced to soil or plants or whatever, isn't going to disrupt the natural uh, like microbiome or, you know, the natural populations of uh, bacterium and fungi and things like that, we need to make sure that when we apply this, uh, even, you know, at pretty higher, you know, cell rates, cell count rates, uh, that we're not going to be disrupting it. We don't want it to be killing off other things. We don't want it to be, um, you know, promoting bad, you know, other pathogens and things like that. We want to make sure that it's just going to be, you know, mingling, you know, behaving well with others, uh, playing along with others. Uh, that hasn't been looked at yet. It will definitely need to be. Um, and I'm sure it will be at some point uh, because that's really, really important. Uh, and if all of that passes, I think, you know, it has potential to be used as a biological control agent, in, you know, at a, in a commercial setting. But uh, that's uh, only time will tell, honestly. Uh, but yeah, that's really, that's really what my master's was. I tried to, you know, I didn't want to get into things like, you know, statistics and, you know, really nitty gritty details because that would be really, really boring. Uh, I think I, you know, I did my best here. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to email me. The email's in the description of this episode. And, uh, yeah, uh, next episode will probably be me talking about a guest lecture I've given um, 
twice now on the white nose syndrome of bats. Uh, very interesting, very, very scary. Um, very, very scary uh, disease that could, you know, have really big consequences for everyone. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I guess I forgot something. I guess I forgot why is this important, uh, the main point. Uh, I got into it a little bit, you know, it's cost millions of dollars, but, um, you know, Virginia is still a growing industry, growing wine industry. I mean, it's not even 1% of the U.S. because of the U.S. wine production because the California is, like, does a large majority of that. Um, so, you know, this, it's a new industry. It's still growing. It's growing pretty fast. And if we don't find control for this disease, the disease is going to grow along with it and the damages will continue to grow every single year. So we, what we need to do is, you know, find a solution to this, or at least, you know, somehow to mitigate it because as it gets, you know, worse, you know, it's going to be costing Virginia wine grower, grape growers more and more every year. And then that will, you know, it could be a ceiling to how much, you know, grape production in Virginia could grow to. So we, it's something that's really important. And, you know, wine is great. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's really all I could think of. I mean, I, it's really important that we save, you know, agriculture as much money as we can because... Uh, it's super, super important. Um, yeah, so that's all I got. Uh, next episode, probably going to be White Nose Syndrome. Uh, look forward to giving that one. I've given that one a few times. Uh, that's been designed also to for the layperson, so it's like right up my alley. Um, yeah, so if you like this one and you like the first episode, uh, feel free to subscribe. And if you have any uh, corrections... Hopefully you don't have any corrections because this is my work, so I would hope I didn't get anything wrong. Um, and, or suggestions, uh, I'm def- I'm willing to take those and get back to you as quickly as possible. Emails in the description. All right, thanks everyone for listening.